Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we are here to keep you guys up on the literature, and to do that, we spoon-feed it to you. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. But don't worry, they're all good articles. However, if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, we don't ever want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors Samuel Rouleau, Jason Lesnick, Aaron Lacey, Amanda Matthews, and Clay Smith. Okay, let's skip to the second article. Titled, Peripheral Administration of Norepinephrine, a Prospective Observational Study out of the journal Chest. Gosh, remember when we thought we could only give pressors through central lines? Wasn't that kind of silly? And it wasn't even that long ago. Most, any patient who needs pressors is probably already going to have an IV placed if it's been at all possible to do. But getting a central line, that's uh, a bit of a different story. Doing this could delay the administration of pressors, of course, and there's a whole list of complications that come along with putting in central lines. These authors have wondered if implementing a protocol for the peripheral use of norepinephrine would decrease how many days patients had central lines for and how many central lines were placed overall. This isn't necessarily a given because most people don't run their pressors in peripheral lines for more than, say, 24 hours. It still sucks if they extravasate after all. Now, these authors were pretty strict in their protocol, and you should be when you're running peripheral pressors. The protocol required two peripheral IVs, at least a 20 or a 22 gauge above the wrist, but below the antecubital fossa. They had to be ultrasound placed and confirmed with patency assessed every two hours. And the maximum dose of norepinephrine to be infused through them was 15 micrograms per minute with a max infusion time of 48 hours while requiring patients to be able to report pain at the site of their administration, which means that the patient has to be awake. Now, later in the study, they actually updated their protocol. They added checks by a nurse supervisor to verify that there was protocol adherence. They upgraded their IV choice to 18-gauge IVs, as well as including blood back in their patency checks while removing the 48-hour limit, and the patients no longer had to be able to report that they had pain at any of these sites. At first, I was going to be a little bit skeptical of the protocol, but they seem to have run into some of the things that I would have been skeptical about, and they changed much of the protocol. Pretty bold of them to go past 48 hours for peripheral pressors, but, uh, you know, with a pretty strict protocol, I think it's reasonable. So as you can mostly tell from the protocol, this was a single-center prospective observational trial in a medical ICU. They enrolled 635 patients. They found that this protocol for peripheral pressors decreased the average duration of central venous catheters by one day per patient. Of the patients on the protocol, 52% of them never required a central line at all. The median max dose of norepinephrine was 10 mics per minute, but 15% of the patients on the protocol went over the max that was in the protocol of 15 mics per minute. 20% of patients had their pressors given peripherally for more than 24 hours. Now, if a central line was placed, then it was typically placed quite early, a median time of 3.6 hours, which is interesting because it's not that people are getting finicky after 24 or 48 hours and thinking, all right, let's just get a central line in so that the nurses are happy or there's more access. I wonder, though, perhaps it was because they required higher doses of norepinephrine up front or just because the staff didn't really believe in the protocol and wanted to just place a central line because that's their usual practice. 
As for side effects, 5.5% of patients had extravasation events, 60% of which were very mild, 37% of which were a grade 2 on the Nurses' Society infiltration scale, a scale I'd never really heard of. But even a grade 2, which now accounts for 97% of all the cases, are pretty harmless. The remaining single patient who had a grade 4 infiltration, yeah, well, that patient actually died before being evaluated by the study team, and the default grade was to say it was a grade 4. So it's hard to say how bad that extravasation event actually was. Only half of the patients who had an extravasation got a central line, so the other half just continued their pressors through a different line. This is actually pretty great. Great for the emergency department and great for the ICU. For us in the ED, it seems like you can feel pretty darn safe and pretty good about starting pressors through just a PIV, without committing to a central line. That was quite safe in this trial, though unlikely that you'd get the kind of monitoring that you would have in the ICU in any of our emergency departments. I like that they were using 18-gauge needles. I personally also try to put the IV at more around the antecubital fossa so you've got bigger veins when I'm running peripheral pressors. In Spoonful, this was a lovely, safe, and prospective study showing safety and benefit to the use of peripheral pressors for norepinephrine. And then the third article, titled A Taxonomy for Key Performance Errors for Emergency Intubation under the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. I can't remember if I've raved about this on the podcast before, but I love the idea that you can record intubation attempts with a video laryngoscope, and then you can run post-mortems on them. After an attempt, you can sit down with a learner who tried to do it, or even with a colleague, and talk about what went wrong, or even what went right. Hey, actually, I, I also just noticed that uh, Scott Weingart is the first author on this paper, and that's great because he actually champions this on his podcast. These authors use video recordings of intubation attempts to try to create a taxonomy of errors that occur during suboptimal intubation attempts in the emergency department. Videos that had been flagged as intubations that could have been better were reviewed by three physicians and coded for 13 predetermined performance errors. They had 100 videos to review overall. All intubations were done with a standard geometry MAC blade, and uh, although it was definitely a video laryngoscope, it's not known whether the intubation was done by looking at the screen or doing it directly. There were a total of 13 different errors in which these authors were coding for. I'm not going to list them all, but the five most common were inadequate lifting force, failure to engage the midline of the vollecula, which we know is important from other articles that we've covered, a bougie delivery issues at this site, uh, bougie first intubations were the norm. There were a total of 13 errors that the authors were coding for. I'm not going to list all of them, but the most common were inadequate lifting force, failure to engage the midline of the vollecula, which we know is important from past articles we've covered on the journal feed. Bougie delivery issues at this site, bougie first intubations were the norm. Insertion off midline leading to esophageal views and lost seating in the vollecula. Interestingly, they did not include overriding the epiglottis using a Mac blade as a Miller blade as an error because this is considered a legitimate technique. Though in 40% of cases, it's hard to say if this was done intentionally or not. It would have been nice to know if the practitioner was doing direct or video laryngoscopy when they made each attempt, just to know what each case was doing wrong. Also, because all the data was de-identified, the authors did not assess who was doing the intubation, so they were not aware of the experience of the practitioner, whether it was a resident, a medical student, or a seasoned staff. Not sure who is making what kind of errors. That's unfortunate as well. Maybe in the future we'll be able to look at this. 
Regardless, this is a really nice list of things that you should be looking to see if you're doing. And they're a list of reasons that you can come back to to think about why your intubation attempts failed. In a spoonful, this was a really lovely study that I will surely be making a presentation about in the coming weeks. This has sold me on the value of reviewing your intubation videos. Okay, that's it. That's all our articles from this past week. Let's do a quick wrap up. From the second article, pressors can be given peripherally. It's safe, and it could even save our patients some central pokes. From the third article, this is an excellent look at what kinds of mistakes are made during intubations, and this is a good reason for you to review the footage of these intubations if you can. Now again, if you're hearing this right now, then you are not part of the members feed, and so you missed three articles from this past week. One of them was about whether or not we really need clavulinate for acute sinusitis. Another article looked at, uh, you know, maybe replacing the Hasblad score with something better. And then finally, we did a quick review on Cauda Equina Syndrome. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.